Good morning again. Welcome to Holy Trinity. I'm John, one of the pastors, and we're glad that you are here. Um, if you're really warm this morning, um, maybe you're warm. Maybe it's just that I was moving chairs, but they're going to turn it down three degrees. So in the next few minutes, hopefully you will get cooler. Um, I love May. I said to Amy on the way here that I actually think maybe the first Sunday in May is my favorite Sunday of the year. And the reason is, is because, well, people have shorts on when they go to church. But you basically, you know that April and its wickedness is behind you, you know, with 85 degrees and then 32 degrees, that fluctuation. And uh, I, I don't think I have a seasonal affective disorder. I think I just get depressed when the sun isn't shining. And maybe that's the same for you. So when it's shining, I love it. And you think you got May, you got June, you got July, you got August, and then September. You got some good months ahead of you. So welcome to church in May. I'm going to ask you to uh, take out a digital device or Bible, if you would, and turn to Acts chapter 13. This is a historical book found in the New Testament, and uh, in the Bible I have, it's on page 1031, and uh, I'm going to ask you actually to stand, if you would, sorry, Acts 15 is what I meant, my Bible flipped open to the wrong spot, so stand up if you would, we do this just because we want to be attentive and sort of reverent as we hear the word read, I'm going to read most of this chapter, but I'll, I'll uh, read just some portions because it's a long text. So this is Acts 15, and it's called, the header there is the Jerusalem Council. Verse 1, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, that's a little sort of British phrase there, no small dissension and debate, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought joy to all the brothers. And when they came to Jerusalem... They were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, which is a very strict religious group observing all of the law, they rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them, that is the Gentiles, the non-Jews, and order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you. This is Peter recounting his own um, experience in seeing Gentiles saved. That by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel or good news and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved 
through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles or the nations. And after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, that is Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. Just as it is written, after this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it. And then the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Verse 19, therefore, and this is James' continued speech, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from generation, from generations, Moses has, in, has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. And they sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. And it continues on in the letter. And then in verse 28 is the conclusion, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay no greater burden than these requirements that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter, and when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were among the prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time there, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to, to those who had sent them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, welcome again to Holy Trinity. And uh, we're really glad that you're here to, to look at this text in light of what, what's called the mission to the ends of the earth. Um, from the perspective of Luke and who is the author of this letter, this historical account, the, the gospel or the good news of Jesus is moving out, as he writes in Acts 1-8, from Jerusalem to Judea and then to this region called Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. This is the part of the journey where it starts to go to, from, the, from the Jewish perspective to places that seem very far away. So that this is like a turning point in the text, and from now on, the, 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 the view is going to be looking towards Rome, which from Jerusalem at that time seemed like a very far distance for the gospel to travel. Some of you may have heard of Elizabeth Ann Holmes. She has become quite famous or rather infamous in the last number of years from a very young age. Elizabeth Holmes wanted to be a billionaire when she was at a family gathering at the age of nine or ten years old. One of her family members came up to her and said, what do you want to be when you grow up? And she very quickly, without missing a beat, said, I would like to be a billionaire. 
<laughs> and the family member, this is a kid with convictions, right? So the, the family member wanting to test her a little bit said, would you rather be the president? And her immediate response was, well, if I had a billion dollars, the president would want to marry me, is what she said. Well, she did actually achieve her childhood dream. In 2015, her wealth was measured by Forbes as being $4.5 billion, which is nothing to uh, sneeze at. She, many people thought she was going to be the next Steve Jobs. She was backed by Larry Ellison and others, and her focus was on blood. When she was in Stanford, like Steve Jobs, not like him in terms of being at Stanford, but like him, she dropped out of college and became an entrepreneur. She had this idea when she was in college that you could put a patch on someone's arm and test their blood, they could, that you could run these sort of remote tests and that it would sort of, that it would uh, revolutionize or transform the way blood was tested. She founded, as you may know, a company called Theranos, which is a combination of two words, therapy and diagnosis. The problem is her research actually did not hold up. It was a fraud. What she promised people was untrue. And so for a period of time, Silicon Valley was consumed with confusion and conflict and controversy about her devices. And eventually, she was found to be a fraud and charged with such. In our text this week, as I've said, we come to a pivotal chapter in Acts. And as the good news has begun to spread, a group comes in, and they have some very high claims about how a person can come to know God. But their claims begin to swirl throughout the church in Asia Minor such that they have to have a, the first sort of church-wide council in Jerusalem to ask whether the confusion is true or not. To ask whether the claims of those who are making claims are making true claims. Our text has kind of two geographies in it. One is in Antioch, which is where the mission had started in chapter 13, this missionary journey. And some people came down from Judea, verse 1 tells us, and they were teaching the brothers this, this point, that unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So this is a, a teaching and a doctrine that start, strikes at the very heart of what Christianity is about, which is how are people saved? That is, are people saved by the way that they obey, or are they saved by the obedience of someone else? And what Paul and Peter and Barnabas and James are claiming in this text is it doesn't matter how hard you work to try to make yourself acceptable to God. That acceptance by God is... A radically free gift. And that if you try to tack on extra things to it, to say, well, it's Jesus' kindness, Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection, Jesus' blood, and X, Y, Z, you're actually distorting the entire truth of the gospel. So I'm just going to do two things in my message today. One is tell the story again a little bit, just walk through it. 
and then I'm just gonna apply it. There is a bunch of parts of this that I think are super applicable to our, our, our culture today, and I want you to be able to see that in the second half of the message. So verses one to five is kind of this controversy, conflict, and confusion. And the confusion is this, is that Christianity or salvation is often distorted by what you might call moralists. People who say, yes, it's Jesus, but it's Jesus plus X, Y, and Z. I, I had a sad conversation once with my Next door neighbor, we live in a house that has a party wall and neighbor that lived on the other side. And at one point, I was talking to this amazing, successful young woman, African-American entrepreneur, and asked her about her own spiritual background. And she said she had become Buddhist. And I said, what was your background before that? And she said, I was at a Pentecostal church in the city, and they told me that I couldn't wear pants to church. And I said, if I can't wear pants to church, then I don't want anything to do with a God who wouldn't allow me to wear pants in church. There's something that was added on to the teaching there. And, and oftentimes, what moralists do is add things on to try to protect the gospel itself or to try to sort of protect the purity of the church. And this is what they're saying, that you have to be circumcised according to the custom of Moses. Verse 2 says that after Paul and Barnabas had this de debate with them, they said, hey, let's go to Jerusalem and get the other founders, the disciples of this faith, and find out what they think. And so it says, verse 3, that they were sent on their way. They come to Jerusalem. In verse 4, they're welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders. And the same conclusion is, or the same premise is put forward in verse 5. They started telling these stories saying, look, this, this, pr these promises that we thought were, were only for the Jews are now being extended to these people. And what happens then is the Pharisees, these sort of very religious rule keepers, rise up and say, it is necessary to circumcise the Gentiles, those non-Jews, in order to, to help them, to, in order that they can keep the law of Moses. Now, there's 613 different commandments in the Old Testament that Jews today even call the mitzvot. So the question here is, do all of those commandments need to be kept if you convert to Christianity, if you begin to follow Jesus? And that's the debate what it, that this is all about. Or another way to think of it is, it, it's a question about how does God welcome people into his family today? Does he look at people and say, okay, you've done this number of good things and this number of wicked things? Oh, look, your, your good things outweigh your wicked things. Or does he knock that over and set up a new standard, which is not moralism but grace, and say, actually, the life of Jesus has been put on the good side of the scale, so to speak, for you, and everything that he's done, it outweighs everything wrong and everything good that you have done. There's a difference between, moralism says, if I obey, I'm accepted. Grace says, Jesus accepted, sorry, Jesus obeyed, therefore I am accepted. When it comes right down to it, you could think of the issue this way. Is God's love conditional on our obedience 
or conditional on Jesus' obedience. And we live by faith. So they're saying no circumcision. If you don't get circumcised, which is the, the Old Testament sign of the covenant, then there is no salvation. And really, if you think about it, that means that what's at stake is how big is the mission of the church? Is it basically like a sect of Judaism? Is it really only for the people who can keep all of the laws, who follow in a certain way? That's the confusion and the the controversy and the conflict. And then what you get next in the passage is, is some clarity that comes from three people, from Peter, then, well, three sets of people, Peter, and then Paul and Barnabas, and then James, really mostly Peter and, and James. So Peter, verse 6, they're all gathered together, and then it says there's a lot of debate, verse 7, and then Peter stands up, and he basically tells them what God did through him, how he had this dream, and how he was called to go to Cornelius, and he had the, the dream where this, like, tarp is, is lowered down or this sheet is lowered down and God says, rise up and eat. And he says, I can't eat those unclean animals. And then he realizes that God is not talking about animals, that he's talking about people. That it isn't a particular kind of person that God saves from a particular kind of background, but rather that he's calling what you might call all the nations to himself through the free gift of grace. He basically says three things. One is that God called him and that God called him to non-Jews. Two, he says that the Holy Spirit was given as a gift to non-Jews. And it was like evidence of God's work. And then three, and this is the, I think this is the pivotal part of the text, is that God cleanses the hearts of those who have faith in him. I just want you to think about the imagery of that for a moment. Like, is... If you had to cleanse yourself internally, how do you do that? And what most of religion says is that the way that you can sort of cleanse yourself internally, cleanse your heart, is by trying as hard as you can to obey. And what Peter is saying is, no, that's not true. That cleansing is an internal work of God that comes when we look on the finished work of Jesus whose blood was shed for us. He says in verse 9, this is Peter, And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. There's a, there's a certain, when Rich and Laura were praying just a moment ago, you heard the way that grace kind of knocks down barriers. So much of our culture says that you have to believe a a certain political way to be acceptable, that you have to behave in certain ways to be acceptable to God. And this is saying, no, it actually comes by faith. And then there's a kind of kicker at the end of Peter's little speech. He basically says, you guys are testing God. (laughs) So the people are saying, "We we want people to be moral and religious. Peter, like Jesus, speaks out against those who put too many strictures on people. Listen to what, listen to how sharp his rebuke is there. In verse 10, he says, Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing, listen to the imagery, by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? In other words, the imagery of a yoke is this wooden beam that is put between a pair of oxen 
in order to pull something. You picture oxen, these enormous beasts pulling something very heavy. And he's saying, you're putting on the people of God something that they can't pull. I don't know if you've ever seen a beast trying to pull something that's too heavy for them and they cannot move it. and It constricts your motion. It constricts your freedom. And that's what he's saying is people, moralists, who add things to the free gift of Jesus are actually placing a burden on them that no one can bear. One of our congregants wrote a brilliant essay not too long ago called Raised by Wolves. And it begins in this way. I grew up in West New Guinea, son of missionaries who served there for eight years. And I was six when I arrived, 13 when we left. And people, when people ask what my childhood was like, I said, I sometimes have said I was raised by wolves. It's a pretty provocative statement. Uh, but then what, what this author means is legalistic wolves. And he, he describes them as fearful and overworked supervisors who bred excessively strict rules, constant surveillance, and brutal punishments. I know young kids that have grown up in a context like this where you're not allowed to chew gum in school or run in the hallways and began to view God as some overarching oppressive figure that they wanted nothing to do with. This guy writes later, that the last person to finish all their food at the table in this context would be kind of heaped upon with shame, and everybody else had to wait until that person was done. These kinds of, this kind of legalism can suck the life right out of your soul. Some of you were raised in a, a barren Catholic upbringing and have felt those kinds of strictures. What Peter is trying to protect is in verse 11 that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. That's, I'm going to use some really highfalutin words for a moment. Sola fide, sola gracia, sola Christus. That's the discovery of Martin Luther that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And God accepts us not because of the work that we do, but because of Christ's merits. That's the, that's the speech of Peter, but I just want you to, to feel the freedom of this. This is saying that you are to live by the Spirit, that God dwells within you, and he has put his law within you, and you obey him by the Spirit, not through external conformity. Jesus obeyed, and we are accepted. That's the clarity in the confusion. Then you hear uh, what happens after his speech is everybody falls silent. Verse 12, there's a hush. The fraud of works righteousness is being rebuked. Pete, Barnabas and Paul, they bring some clarity. It doesn't tell us what they said there. Some people think, and I think this may be true, is that, it, that the uh, letter to the Galatians was written right in this context, which speaks against almost exactly the same kind of viewpoint that you have to be circumcised to keep the law. Then somebody else stands up, which is James, and he says in verse 13, Brothers, listen to me. He talks about Peter and what was done there. And then he says, this isn't plan B by God to include all of the nations by grace through faith. This is plan A. This is what he always meant to do. And he quotes a passage from Amos, which says this. This is verse 16. After this, I will return 
and I will rebuild. I want you to see the verbs there. After this, I'm going to return, and I'll rebuild the tent of David that has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it. What uh, James does is he says, he stands up and he says, this was God's plan to return to Israel, to restore, restore them and to rebuild them, that the remnant of mankind may seek God and all the Gentiles who are called by his name. When I was a kid, I had the chance to go to some summer, summer camps. Maybe you had the chance to also, maybe you didn't. But one of the things that summer camps are famous for is pulling pranks on other campers. Uh, even, even when I was an adult and I went to summer camp with some of my kids, or when I went to uh, my kids' elementary school overnights, there was still pranks, like going in and stealing all the underwear. Not me, I didn't do this, but stealing all the underwear of the other people in the other cabin. That's the kind of thing that you used to do. And I was one of the camps that I used to go to, they would keep, the counselors would keep the kids up really late at night until kind of scary stories. Like if you obviously knew they weren't true, but one was about Chainsaw Willie. And so one of the counselors would like then get a chainsaw in, in the, somebody's not in here, they've been in the same camp. They get a chainsaw and pull the chainsaw in the woods. And so these kids are like thinking someone is going to come and chop off their limbs. Another thing that was fun to do is to, to go to the tent of the other campers and you just pull out all of the stakes of their tent. And if you do it, it just, it's kind of harmless, but it just collapses on them. And then there's all this confusion and chaos and they have, you're like trying to find the zipper. Like, how do you get out of here? You know? Well, that's the imagery, not Chainsaw Willie, that is the imagery of this text is that somebody took the promises of David, which was like a tent, and pulled up all the, the stakes, pulled up all the pegs so the thing fell down. In, in historical context, it was Babylon coming and destroying Israel. It was Assyria or even Egypt destroying the promises of David, so that by the time the Old Testament is over, the promises of God to build a house out of David's line look like they are entirely collapsed. And what James is saying here is that God is more powerful than the ruins of your life. Let me say that again. That God is more powerful than the ruins of your life. You look around at your life, you look around at the church. I call it the COVID veil. Like, who knows what's gonna, what, what really our church is going to look like or the church in North America when you unzip the tent and look inside. Like, who's still there? James's message is this, that when something feels like it's in complete ruins, God can still rebuild it. That when something feels like it's a total failure, which is probably how some of you feel this morning, God can still restore. That, he, that what would happen is the counselor would come around and say, and they'd put up all the tents. He'd re, the counselor would return and fix it so that it still was a place to dwell. I don't know if you ever feel like that, like, man, I'm, I'm trapped in something that I can't get out of. I'm like just flailing around. I don't know where I'm going. Part of what I want to proclaim to you from this text is God is a rebuilding 
restoring, returning God. I know a lot of you feel trapped by different parts of the cir- your circumstances, but this text is saying that God returns and restores and rebuilds. And the promise that that's true, the fulfillment aspect of this text, is that it's the resurrection of Jesus who's taken the ruin of death, the rejection of sin, and said, let me do something new here. So that one day, as we sang earlier, as we heard them sing, God's going to wipe away every tear. God is going to wipe away all the brokenness. All the humidity in Chicago will not be in the next life. So James gives this conclusion and says this all needs to be communicated to others, and then it's reiterated again. But the question is, should we keep the Mosaic Law and know that that is a yoke, but then it's really interesting because even though he's saying this, that, that salvation is by grace, he actually says, they actually say, be careful of a few things. Basically, be careful of idolatry and sexual immorality is what it says. It says, this, you sh- we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from what's been strangled, and from by blood. And uh, that, that word there for sexual immorality, you'll, you'll notice the root word that we get from it. It's porneia. It's like our word pornography, but it relates to any kind of sexual sin. So they send, they send them off and say, okay, that's the letter that needs to be communicated to everyone. But the goal... <laughs> Is not to, was not to bind people, but to set people free. And yet at the same time, they said, let's protect the purity of the church. That's the story. I'm going to do some applications with you, some implications, if you don't mind. Five, just five takeaways. Takeaway number one is God loves all the nations. Like he loves every people, linguistic group. And he wants people, he wants people from every nation, tribe, and tongue to hear the gospel. I'm so glad, I can't remember if it was two and a half years ago or three and a half years ago that somebody texted me and said, hey, I have a friend you need to meet who's sitting here this morning. His name is Tony Dentman, who with his team has shared the gospel more than 2,000 times on the campus of University of Illinois at Chicago. It's about 3.3 miles from here, but there are 4,100-some international students at that school. God is bringing the nations to our cities. He's bringing people from every tribe and nation and tongue to our city because he wants them to hear this message of freedom in Christ. So that's the first thing, the first takeaway is is God wants all peoples to have the good news. And and so uh, one other sort of related implication is don't other people don't think of yourself as like, I'm, I'm on the inside and they're on the outside. God is building this tent that is big enough for all nations. Secondly is that the church and God's people have to protect the freeness of the gospel. So beware of people who force other people by adding on different aspects to the law. And this, this happens, you know, in Christian colleges and places like that where like you have a lifestyle guide and I understand that. 
But be careful also of what that does to people, to have rules that you feel like you cannot keep. Because what this text is saying is that sometimes those things are like a yoke or a prison that no one can bear, that only Christ was able to bear and fully carry the yoke of the law himself and that he did it for you in your place. So keep the gospel free. Don't make, Jesus already paid it all. (laughs) Don't make other people pay it. The third application, after loving the nations and protecting the freeness of the gospel, um, I just want to say that leaders and Christians need tremendous wisdom in times of conflict, controversy, and confusion, which is the time we're in right now. This is a very confusing time. And this kind of counsel that they had, I think, man, I wish sometimes I could get two people on opposite extremes in the same room. Eric Mason and John MacArthur. And I would wish those two guys could sit down and look at each other and just say, do you both believe in the person of Jesus Christ? We need tremendous wisdom. Vody Bauckham calls it fault, fault lines that we have a looming catastrophe coming. I love what it says in verse 28. It says, for it had seemed good to us and to the Holy Spirit to do these things. That's a, there's a certain kind of peace of the Holy Spirit that comes when wisdom speaks. Fourth, protect the, the freedom of the church, yes, but to protect the purity of the church as well. A recent poll says that only half of professed Christians, less than half, believe that sex outside of marriage is unacceptable, that it's casual sex is fine. And Paul and Peter are very clear on this. In 1 Corinthians 5.1, Paul uses that same word, porneia, about a man that's sleeping with his mother-in-law. And the logic in Corinth at that time was, you know what, in the same way that your, your stomach is made for food and food's made for your stomach, um, the body is made for sex. And Paul blows that out of the water and he says, actually, your body's made for God. And he says, if you bind yourself to, say, a prostitute, you're becoming one body with her the two will become one flesh. In other words, you're bringing Jesus into that relationship. He says this, every sin that a person commits is outside his body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And do you not know that the body is the temple of the spirit with whom you have from God? You're not your own, you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. In our autonomous world of individual expressionism, our our sexually confused and conflicted world, do whatever you want with your body. Whatever you would like to do with your body, you do. And this says, actually, you don't belong to you. You were bought with a price. That is a radical call in our world. And then the last thing I want to say is seek the cleansing of your heart. (laughs) Keep seeking it by faith. It's a free gift because of what Christ has done for for us. In 1876, Robert Lowry wrote, who can wash away my sin? You know that song. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Not the blood of Jesus plus something else. Just, that's essentialistic. Just that one thing. The blood of Jesus. Or in a second we're going to sing pardon for peace, sorry, pardon for sin 
and a peace that that endureth thine own dear presence to cheer and to guard. So guard yourself. Let's, Let's guard ourselves for grace. Let's guard grace in the church. Guard ourselves from moralism that adds stuff and guard ourselves from impurity. How big is your vision? Like who might God actually love that you think is somehow the other? Let's watch out for the wolves who add things to the gospel. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for cleansing our hearts. We're amazed that you have done it, and we ask that for those who are caught in the yoke of moralism that you would set them free. We pray this in the name of Christ.